I say this in the introduction to the book, in the aftermath of a murder, no matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor, whether you've got a stake in the world or not, history slows down and takes an interest in who you are, your relationships and what happened in the final moments of your life. That was the voice of podcaster and historian Finn Dwyer, author of A Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders, and also host of the Irish History Podcast. I'm Martin Nutty, and you're listening to an Irish Stew Podcast check-in episode. These episodes feature prior guests and the work they've been doing since we had them last on the show. In this case, we'll be talking about Finn's new book. Now, given the subject matter, a word of warning, we will be talking about two infamous and violent murder cases. Our conversation does not focus on the lurid detail associated with these tragic killings. Rather, we discuss how such events came to pass in the Ireland of the time they were perpetrated and what they reveal about the country. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This episode is sponsored by Shantala, your all-in-one business launchpad in the United States. Committed to excellence and execution, Shantala helps enterprises enter or expand in the U.S. market through bespoke project management and strategic planning solutions. Create and realize your vision with Shantala, where they invest their passion in your future success. To learn more, go to Shantala.space. Yes, dot .space. It's a thing. I'm delighted to have Finn Dwyer back with us. Finn is the host of the Irish History Podcast. He has delved into all aspects of Irish history, stretching back from bog bodies in prehistory all the way up to 20th century labor agitation. Most recently, he has published a book titled A History of Ireland in 18 Murders. The book is published by Harper North. It's an imprint of HarperCollins, and it's available in all fine bookstores, and that is going to be the focus of our conversation. So welcome back, Finn. Thanks very much, Martin. I really appreciate being back on the show. The last time we had you on was back in May of 2021. There wasn't a whisper of a book about murder at the time, so... Talk to us a little bit about the genesis of this book. Where did the idea come from, etc.? I suppose answering this question is a tricky one. Where does a book come from? Because generally, or in my experience anyway, it tends to have lots of different roots. I suppose one place it came from was trying to understand or answer a question that I would have had myself. A couple of years ago, I was cleaning out a garage after my father died and I came across a trove of letters that actually belonged to my grandmother. Now, she was maybe considerably older or there's a big generation gap in my family. So she died the year before I was born and she was a woman who grew up in the early 20th century. But when I read her letters, and these were letters rather that she received, it was really clear there was this huge chasm between me and her and the way we understood the world, the Ireland she grew up in was a completely remote and alien place to the Ireland that I even remember when I was a kid, like a 
for people listening, I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s in Ireland, and that was far removed from her world, let alone 2023. And it also then made me ask, what was the world of her great-grandparents, the people who lived before, during and after the Great Hunger? And through this book, I tried to trace maybe personal accounts and personal stories charting that change and exploring what it was like for people to go through it. And murder is a good lens for this because when I say this in the introduction to the book, in the aftermath of a murder, no matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor, whether you've got a stake in the world or not, history slows down and takes an interest in who you are, your relationships and what happened in the final moments of your life. Usually, not always, but usually. And this is a fascinating insight then into that person's life. We find out where they lived, what their parents were. Maybe we find out what their relationship with their neighbours, the community was, if that contributed to the murder. And through that prism, I attempted anyway to build up a picture of Ireland over the last 200, 220 years, exploring the changes and maybe trying to draw out those links or how society has changed that could lead me in 2023 to be unable to relate to my grandmother who would have grown up maybe a century beforehand and even find the the world maybe a a century earlier incomprehensible. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. That makes sense. It was funny originally when I saw the title of your book I'm like oh another true crime thing because Mm -hmm. in the world of podcasting there's tons of true crime stuff, and some of it is, in my view, exploitative and lurid. And I was delighted to see your comment in the introduction of the book, basically saying that murder is an interesting lens to understand Irish social history, because it usually recounts the lives of people that would normally not appear as part of the historical record, because the historical record is all about the great and important, primarily men. So this was an interesting way to look at Irish history. And, of course, a murder, generally speaking, has a date that surrounds it. So you can put the stake in the ground at that particular date and say, cast back and cast forward as to what was surrounding it from historical time. Why did you choose... 200 years, you could have gone 300 years. Well, like I suppose, again, I mentioned this in the book, that a tricky thing writing a history book is where it starts and sometimes when it ends, but certainly where it starts, and you allude to that there, why not 300 years? One thing that stood out to me, and I think it is a very, very important moment in Irish history or process in Irish history, and that's the interrelated 1798 rebellion that's, inextricably linked to the Acts of Union that pass through the Irish parliaments in 1800 and come into force in 1801, where Ireland is brought into the United Kingdom. And the following 223 years of history on this island have been dramatically shaped by Ireland's relationship to Britain. Obviously, it was prior to this, but it certainly takes heads down a different road, I suppose, in the aftermath of the Acts of Union. And politics changes, sectarianism heightens because of it at times. There wasn't sectarianism. There was really high levels of sectarianism preceding this as well. But it has a huge influence on all aspects of life, particularly the economy. The Irish economy really struggles in the aftermath of this. What I'm trying to say is I feel that at the turn of the 19th century 
is an important moment. It's not just the year 1800 is significant. These huge defining events of the 1798 rebellion and its lead up and then the aftermath are epoch defining. And I thought it was a good place to bookend one side of it. And then I tried to bring the book up close to the present and maybe we'll talk about that when we talk about some of the chapters. But I felt there are events that have happened in the pretty recent past that bookend change that has been going on over the last four or five decades. So the book does really continue up to 2000. The last reference in the book is an event that took place in 2022. You covered your full 200-year stretch. Yeah. Uh, And it is 18 murders and 18 chapters. So what I thought we'd do is actually take the first chapter and the last chapter. The first chapter in your book is set in 1821, at least that's when the murder occurs, Mm -hmm. and it details the tragic murder of Ned and Mary Shea, Mm -hmm. but it actually wasn't just Ned and Mary Shea, it was their whole household. The murder takes place in southern Tipperary. Can you just set the table a little bit in terms of the outline of exactly what happened in their particular case and why you consider that to be an important starting place. Yeah, so the murder of Ned and Mary Shea and, as you say, their entire household captures one of the defining aspects of Irish life in the early 19th century. And this was agrarian conflict or conflict in rural Ireland over land and access to land and everything that arose from that. And Ned Shea was, I suppose, what we call today in Ireland, a strong farmer, but a a well-to-do farmer. He had a large house. He's not a landlord. He has a house that can accommodate, I suppose, 16 people is his household. He has a couple of subtenants who rent land off him. He is also, I suppose, linked to the British administration on the island in that he's a member, or had been rather, a member of the South Tipperary Militia. Ned and Mary Shea, though, are very ordinary people. We would definitely not be talking about them. I'd be surprised if they were mentioned in any history book had it not been what happened to them in 1821. So 1821 is an important year in Irish history in that it's similar to many other years in that there's food shortages. And this is something we forget. I think when we look back at 19th century Ireland, we always think of the Great Hunger as this defining event, and obviously it was. But it's one of many famines that take place in Ireland in the 19th century. And in the years, particularly before 1845, there are numerous famines and food shortages, and each one of these pushes society to the brink. Sometimes this leads to outbreaks of pretty severe violence, or if they happened in Ireland today, they would be like really huge events. And 1821 is one of those years, and I used the murder of Ned and Mary to explore these. But it happens, as it so often happened at the time, it begins with poor weather all through August. There's really heavy rain. We know a lot about this actually because King George IV came to Ireland that summer, in the late summer. So we do have a good sense of what was happening. Again, Ned or Mary Shea don't make the headlines around this time, but what does happen is they decide to evict, or Ned decides to evict, three tenants who have rented small plots of land because these people are unable to pay their rent because, I mentioned there's poor weather, This leads to a poor harvest. The poor then are pushed to the brink. They have to decide whether they're going to pay their rent or eat. They decide, as most people would, obviously, to eat. Ned Shea responds then, when they don't pay their rent, he evicts them. 
This leads to a couple of days later to a crowd of men turning up at the Shea household and burning the house to the ground and then killing everyone inside it, which is several children, a friend of the family and several workers. They also, during the attack, it appears that Ned Shea and another man, Peter Mullally, came to the door of the house and when they came to the door, there was an exchange of gunfire and they were forced back into the house, I suppose you might say. And then eventually, when the embers of the fire die down, they find the remains of several people in it. What interested me was not necessarily just the murder of the Shays. That in itself does tell this broader story of eviction and the poor being pushed to the brink, which is a very important process in Ireland in the early 19th century, but also the reaction to it. So, there's this huge investigation launched at the time by the magistrates of South Tipperary and we've got a great sense of this because of letters written to Dublin Castle from these magistrates and they tell them very clearly that the poor are in a rebellious mood and they don't want to help. So posters put up to offering a reward for information. One letter describes how they're ripped down in the hour and that there's this mood of rebellion. And I think what's interesting here, you know, there's two ways to look at this going, oh, well, the poor support this horrific murder, but that's not really what's going on. There's a conflict because there's a famine coming and people know that in this situation, something has to give. So if the richer farmers can get away with evictions, the poor are going to suffer. If the poor can force back that then they may survive you're talking about very brutal choices that people are making in the early 19th century and i think the shea murder is particularly horrific but i think it does cut to the heart of some of these very difficult choices that people are forced to make in early 19th century ireland and it's not alone the only massacre that of this nature that takes place there's another one at a place called wild goose lodge in loud that's relatively similar the issues are somewhat more remote but they are related to conflict in the community i suppose what's interesting though is that the authorities of the magistrates are intent that they're going to find the people who did this because they obviously want to lay down a marker that this kind of action is obviously not going to be allowed go unpunished and this leads to a saga that goes on all through the 1820s in south Tipperary. there's several cases several people are actually hanged for involvement some of them at least probably were innocent because the testimony used is actually a woman who can't see apparently more than a couple of feet in front of her, yet she testifies to seeing people several yards away. At the time, it's a really famous case because it shocks Ireland in the 19th century that an entire house would be burned down with so many people inside it. In a way, at the time, certainly in the press, you get the idea that it's one of these soul-searching moments about what's going on in Ireland. And I think what it reveals is there's huge structural inequality at the heart of Irish society. And this is finding an out in these really horrific ways. But I think in terms of what I would try to explore in the book is that it's also reflecting this terrible inequality that's at the heart of Irish society, that has in part, not completely, but in part been certainly exacerbated by the acts of union that come into effect in 1801. And I suppose we're all aware what's coming in 1845. Now, people in Ireland in the 1820s obviously weren't, but we're aware that the Great Hunger is this epoch-defining event of the mid-19th century. When we see murders like the Shays in the 1820s, they were warning signs of the deep inequality of Irish society. The brakes needed to be put on. 
We all know they weren't. And the catastrophe that was the great hunger unfolded. Now, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but I suppose the chapter teases this out more about these agrarian tensions and how they're so deeply rooted in Irish society at the time and rooted also then in inequality and kind of this Byzantine world of land ownership where you have landlords and middlemen and farmers and then subtenants and they're all, there's this tension between all these groups that explode into violence in these years of starvation, which 1821 is just one of. And they take place through the 1830s into the early 1840s. 1842 is another year of food shortages in Ireland and another year of violence. Nothing quite as on the level of the burning of the shades, but major food riots all across the southern ports and there are murders as well. One of the words you used in describing this, which kind of popped out at me, was the word brittle. And it seemed to me you describe a country on the edge. Yeah. yeah. And there are a number of different factors feeding into that. Some other research I've been doing has been dealing with the late 18th century and early 19th century and the impact, the negative impact on Ireland of the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. And this is another element that you talk about because those years, which start from 1793 and, and go all the way up to 1815, are boom years, reflecting the huge demand for food because there is no continental trade. And so Ireland does very well out of that. But it makes the case for why trickle-down economics doesn't work. In other words, there are some people making a lot of money, but it certainly ain't making it all, making it all the way down to the kind of very poorest landless laborers that are going on there. It's, so there's a consolidation of wealth taking place, but it, it's not broad-based. No. I suppose... What you're seeing also coming down the line, and, and it's interesting because that 1821 is right in the middle from the active union and the beginning of the Great Hunger. And when we talk about the Great Hunger, it makes the case for non-responsive government, right, that just doesn't react because the active union has caused that. And, and what you're seeing is, is, like you said, it's an opportunity to say, hey, this horrible situation where 16 people died, it doesn't just emerge full-fledged without any causality. So what was your sense about soul-searching in response after this? Did, did it really go on, or was it just all the Irish or savages? Yeah, no, like the, the reactions in the... 19th century to the murder are more along the lines of what you're talking about there that the Irish and there's a common perception in Britain that the Irish are kind of violent they're insubordinate there's several people who are leading British officials on the island in the 1820s or successive figures anyway who talk about the need for a strong government not like Ireland doesn't need democracy the Irish don't understand it they need this benign almost dictatorship it's an age where people understand things quite differently the way we do today. And the idea of racial traits, that the Irish would have these traits that could be used to explain some of this, is 
commonly believed and held. And it's not a surprising thing that you'd find it from these people. And I don't think it would have raised any eyebrows at the time. People might have disagreed about what an Irish trait was, but certainly they would have accepted the notion of it. And you have this consistently right through the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Historians, to a degree, have a luxury. We can look back and there's 202 years distance between us and the burning of the Shea. So we can look at that and recognise it. At the time, there's this moral outrage to what's happened for understandable reasons. What is interesting, though, I thought, is that in those letters I talked about that were sent to Dublin Castle, you can see that the poor are looking at it probably in a different way. And I think... People have complex reactions to it, and it doesn't mean necessarily that they support what happened, but they understand there's a bigger fight going on now between, in 1821, as food runs short, as people are potentially facing eviction. This is going to become more commonplace, and I suppose it's that thing of pick a side, and people do initially. The prosecutions gain traction in 1822, the following year, 1823, and that may be linked also to the, the crisis subsides, so that people aren't as hungry anymore, so they're able to think about other things. So talk to me a little bit about the research behind this particular chapter. Where do you go? Is it newspaper accounts? You, you refer to the fact there was letters being written, I think, back to Dublin Castle. Mm. How do you put the picture together? The main source for that was the, that series of letters that were written back to Dublin Castle from the magistrates in South Tipperary where they're describing the situation they're facing, what's happened. There's several letters detail various different aspects of the murder and reports from the inquest uh, that takes place in the aftermath. Newspapers at the time are very useful. Actually, there was a letter written to a newspaper by someone who was on the inquest jury which provides a lot of detail about what happened. And actually, that letter was... This was the equivalent of syndicated in several newspapers around the world because it provided this detail. And then the book that I was trying to do is the broader picture as well. So there's government reports where you're fleshing out that wider uh, picture of Irish society at the time. I didn't want to get too drawn into the individual cases because the book is not just about Ned and Mary Shea. And obviously, you know, it hinges around their life and, and ultimately their death. It's not a book of true crime. I don't, for example, go into some of the details of the aftermath that newspapers at the time really wanted to publish every last detail of the aftermath of that. Some of it is just extremely disturbing that I was like, I just didn't see the need to include it. It doesn't tell us anything. And what interested me more, though, is what we've touched on here. How did this relate to things like the broader economic picture? the nature of Irish society. What interested me as well was the relationship maybe between Ned Shea and his tenants, but what does that say about wider society at the time? That relationship wasn't unique. This was being played out in lots of farms across Ireland in the 1820s. Okay, it didn't all lead to such a, a violent outcome, and that's why, to one degree, we don't know about them, because no one records an argument between the farmer and his tenant that ends up with the tenant maybe being evicted and he just disappears, goes off somewhere else, or no one bothers to record that, or the situation where maybe the tenant threatens the farmer and he's left on the land. Those aren't recorded. What is recorded in detail 
is obviously the aftermath of a pretty harrowing crime. And that's how we can build up the picture of the tension between Ned Shea. But we can see evidence of it happening in lots of other places as well. So I suppose that was what a lot, coming back to you know the question of the sources, that idea really did interest me a lot, is that broader picture. And that's where you fall back on the economic historians and their work of, of the early 19th century and things like that, which can be very dense material to work your way through, but it really helps us understand what life was like. I suppose that's a challenge of any history book, isn't it, is to make, you know, what does a series of numbers of economic data mean? It doesn't mean anything, really, unless it can be related to a lived experience. An economist can understand it, but I think 99% of the population will just look bleary-eyed at it. And can you relate that to a, a lived experience as opposed to dry data? Well, I think it works really well. And in my reading of it, there are warning signals and flares going off here. And of course, I have, as you point out, the benefit of understanding that a little over 20 years later, the famine breaks out, but you can see all the pieces in place for that catastrophe to emerge. I actually, I've thought a lot about that, and there is interesting analogies that people can be somewhat aware of impending crises coming down the line and not take action, like we're living through one at the moment, where all the hallmarks, and we can see actually societies and communities at the edge are suffering from the impacts of climate change. There's all sorts of predictions of flooding and things like that, and we're not taking the type of action that people are saying is required, we're taking mitigating action about how can we live with this? Maybe we can't, maybe we can't. But I think that maybe is a good analogy for what's happening in early 19th century Ireland. There are people aware that something has to be done and there is actually the Devon Commission is a huge government report into Irish society that's carried out in the early 1840s and it identifies a raft of problems. They touch on all this stuff actually that we've talked about. Rural Irish life and it talks about the need that there's Irish agriculture needs to be restructured. It talks about how this will have to be a slow process because you can't just kick people off the land, but people will have to leave the land because you need larger farms, and so on and so on. This is published in 1845, put on the shelf, great hunger breaks out, and no one takes it back down off the shelf. They implement some of the things that the Devon Commission might have advocated, and rather the Devon Commission says do this very slowly, and they do it at breakneck speed with absolutely disastrous outcomes. I suppose what I'm touching on is that no one can see the great hunger coming. That's not what I'm saying. But they can see there are really, really big problems in Irish society at the time. It's not that people are totally oblivious to them. They do know that these are really major problems. Indeed, the British government commissions numerous reports about how to deal with various different problems in Ireland in the early 19th century, but they dance around the issue. And I suppose... We dance around an issue ourselves today and I can see that parallel that we sometimes look back bewildered at the past about why people do things and then sometimes you get that kind of flash of recognition that we're doing the same thing ourselves today. Yeah, the forces of inertia I think are strong is, is the case you're making. When you're dealing with climate change, I hadn't really thought to relate the two, but yeah, absolutely, because there's a lot of people, a lot of vested interests involved there that do not want change. They're doing just fine. They want to keep a lid on the problem. I can look at the uprising in Gaza and say exactly the same thing. You talk about trying to keep a lid on a problem. You create essentially an open penitentiary and hope that that's not going to explode and burst its border. And we obviously can see the outcome. But I think, speaking of Gaza, what I want to do is kind of flash forward to more contemporary times. 
Because the last murder you deal with is the tragic killing of Declan Flynn in 1982. Now, interestingly, that was a year before I left Ireland. So it is an Ireland that I am intimately familiar with. And I can say in 1982, I knew nothing about the murder of Declan Flynn. What I do recall, though, was the trial that followed on it. The trial leads to a conviction, but where people all of a sudden started paying attention was those that had perpetrated the crime all received suspended sentences. And that triggered an enormous outbreak, which I totally remember. At that point in time, this was on my radar. So I want you to talk about the choice of this particular event. I can talk about why it was meaningful to me, but it's interesting because I'm a bit older, so I actually remember it in real time, whereas you're looking at maybe a little more from a historian point of view, which is starting to make me feel really old during this conversation. But tell me about the choice of this particular tragedy. Yeah, so Dr. Flynn was a gay man who was murdered because he was gay. This all came out in the trial. This is not an assertion or anything like that. The people who killed him were teenagers and they were very clear that they had been attacking gay men in Fairview Park and that's why they attacked Declan Flynn. I was, I suppose, quite aware when you're talking about a, a murder, Declan Flynn's family are still alive and there's a couple of cases where there are immediate family members who are still alive. The aim of the book isn't to provide any new necessarily insight. I, I felt though that that murder was very important in terms of Irish society because it comes at a moment that reflects maybe what many people at the time would have considered the like the height of conservative Ireland. At a distance, it seems to be in and around the time that this murder takes place. For example, not long after the murder, the Eighth Amendment is passed into the Irish constitution and for people unfamiliar with it, the Eighth Amendment basically banned abortion in Ireland and was a constitutional ban. So it would have to be repealed by a referendum was the only way that this could be overturned. I think at a distance, it looks like Ireland is not changing. You can look back at maybe the height of the Catholic churches in the 50s, but like its cultural values and social values really seem to be rock solid by the early 80s. But in and around the Declan Flynn murder, you see that that is not really the case. In Ireland in the 1980s, the LGBTQ plus community are so marginalised that murders in the community are not really discussed. So, for example, probably the most famous gay man in Ireland would be Senator David Norris. And in his autobiography, he talks about knowing, I think he knew eight men who were killed because they were gay, seven of them in Dublin. And this really shocked me. This is one person, and he knew seven people who'd been killed because they were gay. A Garda report or a police report into this not that long ago basically said we won't know the answer to this because it was never really investigated properly. And, you know, if you look back through newspapers in the 80s and 90s, you can see references to probably what are homophobic murders taking place. But a lot of the time we don't know and they're not reported as what they were. My point is, in the aftermath of this murder, it's clear that there's a, a movement that is going to demand change in Ireland. And it's not just the gay community. The gay community 
in the aftermath of Declan Flynn's murder have to make a stand and people who were active in the movement back in the early 80s are very clear about that. They knew that if they didn't take a stand to the aftermath of the sentencing that you referenced there, Martin, where the killers are essentially given a pass by the judge and the community in the aftermath of this know that if they don't make a stand, well then, people are just going to attack them willy-nilly. There's a demonstration in the aftermath of that. But what's interesting as well is at the same time, you get changes in terms of women's rights in Ireland, but you get a movement consolidating itself that's going to demand changes to the way women are treated. Now, immediately after this, as I mentioned earlier, you get a ban on abortion brought into Ireland, and it does seem that things are going from bad to worse. But that movement does gain pace. And through the chapter, I, I kind of trace some of the big changes that start to take place through the 80s and the 90s. Now homophobia did rampant in Ireland in the 80s and 90s. I mentioned David Norris there. He's a Joycean scholar and he was selected to go to the US as part of a tourist outreach. And before he could do this, he had to give a pledge that he wouldn't talk about his views on homosexuality. It was demanded by some local politician that he do this. But at the same time, we have this seemingly conservative movement consolidating itself that sort of challenge all this. And into the 90s, you see big changes. Ireland is liberalising anyway. Maybe some of what's an important thing I trace in the chapter is the architecture of that conservatism, which is the Catholic Church, goes into a, a massive crisis in the early 90s through a series of, I suppose, what you'd call self-inflicted wounds as society begins to learn. The first crises are actually they seem totally minor today, where a bishop and a priest, we find out in the early 90s, had had their own families. And what this does is it highlights to people in Ireland the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church. It's telling people not to have sex outside marriage. It's preaching, I'd say, the high moral ground on these issues. And it turns out then the priests who are supposed to be celibate, and these two priests in particular have been very vocal, Amy Casey and Michael Cleary, had their own families and have been having relationships Then in the aftermath of that, you get the breaking of the story of child sexual abuse. And what's probably more important also is the covering up of child sexual abuse. It's the fact that the church hierarchy, even priests and bishops who weren't necessarily perpetrating this abuse, but were hiding people who were and essentially facilitating them. So the Catholic Church goes into massive decline through the 1990s. And I chart that through looking at things like church attendance. And we can see this huge drop off, particularly in uh, people under the age of 40. So that architecture of conservative Ireland starts to fall apart. And we start to see the changes in attitudes. Now, people always, when historians are very guilty of this, you want the defining moment. When did it happen? Where there's a marriage equality referendum where in 2015, the LGBTQ community would look at that as a moment where they get formal acceptance by society. And then in 2018, there's a referendum that overturns the ban on abortion. But you can see attitudes changing way before that. And a very famous drag performer in Ireland Panty Bliss said in the aftermath of the marriage equality referendum they knew this change because they'd been having the conversations but in the book I look at the first gay characters in Irish soap operas and you can see in the 90s there is a change happening there's a, a gay character in the Irish soap opera Fair City but what's probably even more significant is that the first gay kiss takes place on a Irish language soap opera which is set in rural Ireland which and its audience would be more rural maybe than Fair City which is set in Dublin and targeted maybe more at a more urban audience which you'd imagine would be more progressively minded or tend to be in history but I think that shows 
there's a change. You know, there's always a tension. The scriptwriters are obviously pushing boundaries, but at the same time, it does reflect the change taking place. And there's a tension there. You get, like, pushbacks in the opposite direction. And in the 90s, there's a very narrow referenda and things like divorce and things like that, that Ireland, to some outsiders, still seems to be stuck back in the 1950s, but it's not. And I suppose what I'm trying to tease out in that is how does Ireland go from what is one of the darkest moments for the LGBTQ plus community in the early 80s when Declan Flynn is murdered and official Ireland basically doesn't take action to a situation where same-sex marriages are approved in a referendum. And this referendum is considered to be far more than just about same-sex marriage. And now Ireland today, I think, would be considered one of the most gay-friendly countries in, in, in Europe. And even in the early 2000s, the idea that you could have a Taoiseach who's openly gay, I think, would have seemed completely implausible. And today, I think most Irish people don't really think about it. And I think that's where you want to be. I wanted to chart that change, because I think it is a very important and significant one in Irish life and in Irish society over the last 40, 50 years. I think it's clearly a time of extraordinary change. And if you think about it again, it's got a bit of a midpoint between independence mm. and contemporary time, right? It's 60 years into independence, and the country hadn't changed very dramatically over those first 50 to 60 years. And then you have this accelerating shift the other thing that struck me as well, as I recall that time, that was the point in time where AIDS, HIV, yeah. was also part of the backdrop of this story. And if anything, it felt to me that people felt empowered by the presence of this disease, which was certainly rampant in the gay community. Now, of course, it turns out later that we learned that it's not just limited to the gay community, but in 1982, people thought it was. And over this side of the Atlantic, I remember Ronald Reagan, and I'm quoting him loosely here, uh, saying something to the effect of AIDS is God's retribution upon the gay community. So I think some of that kind of thinking also went into this, people feeling empowered because the perpetrators of this crime were young men, but they didn't operate in a vacuum themselves. No. A friend of mine who grew up in London, and he only moved to Ireland like 15 years ago, but he said that he remembers the AIDS crisis in the early 80s in London, and it got to the point where people were bringing their own pint glass to the pub because you were afraid that if you drank a pint glass that could have been touched. He actually explained it to me in the context of COVID and that there was a similar idea that that's how AIDS passed around, that it was that contagious. But then, as you're saying there, it's also got all these moral associations and considered retribution and divine retribution on the gay community. I think there was plenty of homophobia going around Ireland in advance of that. Another important thing to point out here is that it's not just cultural and social attitudes. The Irish police were prosecuting people for being gay. People went to prison for being gay, like were being prosecuted. And this actually leads to a further marginalisation of the community because people are afraid that 
criminals will prey on gay people because they know that they can't go to the police if they're robbed having met up because they think that they're going to have sex or have a relationship with someone of the same sex. That's a crime. So if that person then robs you, you can't go to the police because you'll have to essentially admit a crime. This marginalised the community. It also feeds this internal distrust, obviously, between members of the community because people are worried that they're going to be blackmailed by a partner. And I can't imagine what that's like. That's at the back of your mind when you're trying to start a relationship with someone. So I think what you're talking about there, I suppose we could call it the bottom-up homophobia. But this is then fed from the top down by laws and the Gardaí out there. Like, you know, this is not just a law that's on the statute books that people don't prosecute. It is being prosecuted. I can't remember the exact figure, but you're talking about like hundreds of people serving sentences over a couple of decades for this in Ireland. For me, it was a sobering remembrance. And on one side it is, wow, look how far the country has come over those 40 years. And that is, in my view, something to be celebrated, but we have to remember the absolute tragedy of the murder of this young Mm. gentle man. Declan Flynn, by all accounts, was a unremarkable man in a way. He was a quiet man and Mm. was just trying to get on with his life and it's just terribly sad. But the optimistic note, I think, is, is that Fortunately, that, at least, is in the rear view. There are many things that can be still improved in Irish society, but forcing a significant number of people in the community to live in the shadows and a kind of almost quasi-legal hell is no longer with us, and that's to be kind of celebrated. Moving on, it's been two years since we've had you on the podcast. Obviously, this book has been done and congratulations for that it is um on its release i believe it was on the irish times bestseller list so congratulations again i understand the hardback copy will be released in the united states in december but it is available in electronic form so those of you that use kindle etc you can get it right away or of course if you're visiting ireland you can always pick up the book at all fine bookstores but what is coming up for finn dwyer what are we looking forward to so i'm about to start into a series of series might be the way to talk about it where i'm going to tackle something that's a pretty difficult topic and that is going to be the troubles i haven't dealt with the troubles on the show before I think it's really an important time to look back. What I'm going to be focused on largely is the outbreak of the Troubles in the late 60s and early 70s. I think there's increasing talk about Irish unification. And I think understanding the Troubles is an important part of that. I don't think, personally, I don't ascribe to the idea that we should just put that to one side and not talk about it and that we'll all get on fine afterwards. I don't think that's the way things work. People don't forget. I think the the Troubles in particular is something that people think they understand, but actually, particularly younger generations in Ireland, don't really understand how it all started, um, why it started. I've had conversations with people who think that like nationalists in Belfast just wanted to start trouble and that's where the Troubles came from. That's why it's called that. (laughs) but it's that idea history doesn't work like that people don't like what communities across the north went through for 30 odd years there was very real things at play there and 
I'm hopefully going to explore that sensitively. So the way that's going to work is hopefully later this year, I'm going to be exploring an event called the Falls Road Curfew or the Falls Curfew, a, a curfew of the Lower Falls in 1970, where the British Army basically encircled the Lower Falls for three days and 3,000 people were not allowed to leave their homes. Four people were killed. And in that, I'll be charting the story of a man called Zbigniew Uglick, who was a Londoner who came to Belfast during the Falls curfew. And it's a very good insight into a key moment in the outbreak of the Troubles, where the community on the Lower Falls are essentially attacked in a military operation. And it's a defining moment in how nationalist communities, not only in Belfast, but across the North, will relate to the British Army. Um, And then the second part of it is going to be a supporters-only series with Dr. Brian Hanley from Trinity College Dublin, where we'll be exploring a much broader history of the outbreak of the Troubles. So we will be basically starting in 1922 with the foundation of Northern Ireland and taking it all the way up to 1972 when direct rule came into effect. And I thought you were going to start with the plantation of Ulster. Well, you could. That's that's another series. That's a, <laughs> Where do you start, right? It's a tricky one. I think it's one that people will be interested in. How does the society, that outwardly at least, seem to be functioning relatively normally through the mid-60s? By 1972, nearly, well, nearly 400 people were killed that year in the Troubles. How does that happen? And I think maybe by exploring that, we might be able to understand it a bit better and I think understanding this stuff I think can only help. I, as I say, I don't subscribe to the idea that we should just put all this stuff in a box and pretend it didn't happen. I don't think that's helpful at all. Put it in the empty room upstairs, lock the door and throw the key away and pretend everything's going to be okay. No, I do think that'll be an enormously helpful public service and I do take the point that for people it is certainly not lived history. It is actually history for many of them. It did occur in my lifetime, but by the outbreak of the Troubles, I would have only been five years old at the very beginning. So I will definitely look forward to that. And I do take the point that given the change of demographics in Northern Ireland, we need to talk about that history before people embark on border poles, etc. So I will look forward to that. So with that, I just like to say thank you Finn for coming on the podcast I strongly recommend to all our listeners to get themselves a copy of A Lethal Legacy A History of Ireland in 18 Murders published as I mentioned at the top of the podcast by Harper North which is part of the Harper Collins stable and it will be time well spent I learned a lot from it and I'm sure many of our listeners will also. So thank you, Finn. Thanks very much, Martin. Really appreciate coming back on the show again. Hey, it's Martin. It was great to catch up with Finn Dwyer. He's one of the best and most thoughtful podcasters in Ireland, in my opinion. People sometimes ask why history is important and... I'm reminded of the quote often attributed to Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. There's much we can learn from the past, and when I think of this episode, specifically our discussion about the Shea case, there are learnings we can draw from that tragic story. 
I'm thinking of the Dublin riots, which took place on November 23rd, which was three weeks after I recorded this episode with Finn. Now, fortunately, nobody died in Dublin, unlike the 16 victims in the Shea case. 200 years ago in Tipperary, unaddressed land problems led to a bleak choice between eating or paying the rent. The cost of failing to pay the rent would likely result in eviction. It's no surprise that the anger and frustration associated with this situation resulted in deadly violence. A couple of centuries later, we have to ask the obvious question. What are the reasons behind the Dublin riots? Such happenings do not spring full-fledged from the ether. There is a causality. How must we react, and what must be done? And with all that, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review, or make a comment. It all helps spread the word. Until next time, this is Martin Nutty, and you've been listening to the Irish Stew Podcast. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.